0: Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Crimes, Killers and Conspiracies. For today's t- true crime case, we're going to be discussing an unsolved murder. Now this case is uh, its really unsettling because I feel like with disappearances and in cases where people have vanished, we don't know where they've gotten, um, but we kind of think that they're alive, or like there's a hope they're alive, so they're not as scary but with unsolved murders they really like creep me out because someone literally got murdered and the person who murdered them is now walking free it's like what the fuck it's it's kind of mad so we're talking about the unsolved murder of Tina McMenamin so Tina was a dark-haired 18 year old girl who had previously lived with her mother uh, Bernadette in Omaha ever since her parents got divorced 15 years previous. Uh, She graduated in 1994 from Omaha, Omaha Gross High School and Tina spent her first semesters in college in Nebraska, excelling in classes in art, creative writing and political science. Tina thought of Lincoln as a small town, in fact, it took Tina less than five minutes to drive a car from work back to the second floor apartment she shared with her roommate Sarah Boganich. Tina, and Sarah, also, who was also a student, um, had actually known Tina since uh, elementary school. Um, she she'd moved into apartment five hundred and fifteen at the north end of the Amberwood Apartments complex just ten weeks previous to the murder uh, because she was eager to escape uh, the college her college dorm. I guess wanted a bit more of a quieter place to live, and this place was a lot quieter. It housed 100 residents in 14 buildings, and this area, which was south of Nebraska, uh, was known to be relatively quiet with little criminal activity, and although Tina hadn't gotten to know any of the residents very well in the town that she'd lived there, um, The neighbours were friendly, they'd wave when they greeted each other, so it was a a fairly nice place to live. It wasn't, you know, the rough part of town, it was low crime, quiet, kind of suburban. Gina was scheduled to return from work at 5.30pm, because she was working the second part of a a shift that was split into two halves, at Godfather's Pizza. Um, So she didn't have to commute much, I think it was like a five minute walk away. Um, so she had several hours to relax before um, she would have to leave the apartment to go back to work. So Sarah, who was a roommate, left the apartment at 4.45pm to go to work. Tina called Lou, um, which was her friend, and the two talked on the phone till 5.17pm. And Lou was friends with both the roommates who had previously babysat her children for her and invited the girls to come over to her house later that night. With a shift starting in less than 15 minutes, Tina hung up the phone, scribbled a note to Sarah to let her know about Lou's invitation and hung the note on the fridge. Now five hours later, at 10.19pm, Sarah, her roommate, returned home and the thing that was weird here was that when she opened the apartment door, the apartment um, was dark. This is weird because the living room light switch was quite away from the, the front door. So they would always leave the light open when they left the apartment so that when they came back they wouldn't have to walk through a dark room to get to the light switch. And when she switched that light switch on she realised that it, the apartment had been ransacked. She assumed that Tina must have already arrived home from work and then left upon seeing the disordered scene, either to get help, or to wait somewhere safe until Sarah's return. That would explain why the answering machine light was blinking. So she checks the answering machine, thinking that Tina would have called the apartment phone after she'd left to leave a message to Sarah to let her know where she was, and what the plans were. However, when she listened to the voicemails, she realised it wasn't Tina's voice that Sarah heard. It was the voice of her boss at the pizza parlour who said that she hadn't turned up for a shift and was wondering where she was. So Sarah knew something was really wrong now. and She began to shout Tina's name racing around the apartment, but she received no response. She looked into Tina's open bedroom door and saw that the bed was empty But it wasn't until the third or fourth time she walked by that Sarah happened to glance down. And when she glanced down, she saw the body of Tina McMenamin lying on the bedroom floor in a pool of blood. Sarah immediately called the police and was instructed to leave the apartment until officers arrived on the scene. There was no signs of forced entry. And although the the apartment had been ransacked and there was such a disarray, Um, They initially thought it was a burglary gone wrong. However, there was no evidence that anything had actually been taken from the apartment. when the police basically entered the apartment, um, the officers were immediately met with a strong smell of bleach coming from the bathroom. Now, Tina had been stabbed seven times and showed injuries consistent with physical assault and multiple cut wounds, including one across her neck. Bloodstains were found on the walls and on some of Tina's clothes which are on the floor beside her. Investigators eventually concluded that she had been sexually assaulted. And her, and her cause of death was recorded as blood loss from multiple sharp force injuries. Her closet door was ajar and a wooden-handled knife was found next to her left hand. Officers have reported that they do not know whether the knife belonged to Tina or was brought to the apartment by a killer. The knife along with a second knife and a wallet allegedly found on the floor, were taken into evidence by police. Two residents of the complex, Doug Johnson and Erica Sobelik, told officers that they had been home since 5.15 that evening, but hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary. ordinary. Additionally, Additionally canvassing the complex, however, led to two independent witnesses to describe seeing a young white man with long blonde hair, running through the area at around 9pm that night. The first witness saw the man running south from a common area through the apartment complex, while the second witness saw him at 45, 44, 45th Street, no, 45th Street and Old Chesney Road, less than half a mile from Tina's apartment. Now, this person was described as a white male between 18 and 22 years old, approximately 5 foot 10 and he was reported to be thin with muscular arms and legs and was wearing his collar length blonde hair in a ponytail. He did not have any facial hair but possibly wore a gold hoop earring in his left ear. He was described as wearing grey loose fitting shorts and red or pink button down shirt with a micro check pattern. Now Tina was talking to Lou on the phone until 5.17pm and would have planned to leave her apartment by 5.25pm at the latest in order to make it to a half-five shift at Godfather's Pizza. This means that whatever happened to Tina occurred in like such a narrow space of time, you know, between 5.17 and 5.25, twenty five latest. Um, so, Luce stated that Tina seemed perfectly normal on the phone and does not believe that the killer was in the apartment at the time of the phone call. However, based on the disarray of the crime scene, as well as the 9pm witness sightings, it's believed that the offender remained in the apartment for three to four hours after committing the crime. According to Sarah's testimony, he went through pretty much everything we owned. Furthermore, extensive evidence suggested that bleach was used to clean up the forensic evidence after the murder. Although no evidence of bleach was found on Tina's body or in a bedroom, the bathroom, however, was found to be in a heavy was found to have a heavy smell of bleach, suggesting that the killer cleaned himself up in this area. Suggesting that the cleaner cleaned himself up in this area. Police have suggested that the suspect likely smelled strongly of bleach upon leaving the apartment. Also, he probably had injuries received um, in some kind of like struggle or fight with Tina. Officers visited Godfather's Pizza on the night of the murder, where they spoke to the manager which the manager that left the messages on Tina's phone. He reported that he'd been surprised when Tina hadn't shown up to a shift. She was a reliable employee, and it would have been unlike her to miss the shift t- at all. let alone without not- notifying anyone first. Assuming that Tina must have made a mistake about her work schedule, the manager called her twice that evening. After the second call, he began to worry, as he thought it seemed like a lot of unheard messages were piling up on her machine. Tina's car was processed for evidence, and several towels were taken in the bathroom for testing. Blood samples and clothing were also tested, and a search warrant was later issued for hair fibres, as well as four false fingernails belonging to Tina. But the most promising piece of evidence was found clutched in Tina's hand. It was a single blonde hair. Remember that witness that was described before, who had long blonde hair in a ponytail? Is it just a coincidence, or did they see the killer that evening? Four investigators were exclusively assigned to the case, while 15 others provided additional support. With the potential DNA evidence sent off for testing with cell diagnostics, officers began running background checks on other residents of the apartment's and Tina's classmates, as well as investigating known sex offenders to the lo- local area. In total, over 300 people were interviewed in connection to the case, and in August 1995, police began to collect voluntary blood samples from a number of persons of interest. Almost a year later, on June the 4th 1996, police received the results of DNA analysis on the hair found in Tina's hand. Of 30 to 40 suspects who had agreed to provide DNA samples, the forensic evidence was consistent with only one. Gregory Gable Now, Gable was a Lincoln resident in his early 30s and spent most of his adult life living at OUR Homes, which I believe is an organization that basically provides housing um, for people, for adults with developmental disabilities and mental illnesses. Um, And Gable himself had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and had had previous charges for third-degree sexual assault and public indecency. In addition to the DNA evidence, witness testimony placed Gable near the crime scene on the night of the murder. Barry Pointer, who owned a nearby Sonic restaurant, don't know what that is, <laughs> told police that Gable had been there at 10pm that night. Gable had taken advantage of the restaurant's half price burger night promotion, It was a regular occurrence for Gable to go to that uh, restaurant on that night because uh, they ran like a half price burger night promotion so he was regularly there. Um, He's been described as a Rain Man type character, socially inappropriate but with a computer like memory for numbers and facts. None of the Sonic employees had recognised Gable in the police sketch and were shocked that the regular, best-known among the workers for frequently trying to eat inside the restaurant without a shirt on would have committed such a heinous crime. So everyone who, who knew the guy didn't think he was in any way capable of doing it. But the thing about that is all the evidence seemed to point to him. However, I don't think people who knew him and saying that, oh, he, he wouldn't do it. He's he's too innocent for that. Or he, that's it's not like him. I, I just don't think that's a strong enough case to say that he didn't do it, simply because there's a lot of murders that were very nice, that, that seemed very nice, like very nice people. You know, Ted Bundy was known to be very charming. Everyone seemed to think he was innocent. So I, personally, it could have just been... A, his personality doesn't really mean much. On June 25th 1996 Gable was arrested. He was charged two days later. Gable maintained his innocence throughout the investigation and he officially entered a not guilty plea on November the 13th. Despite the forensic evidence many remained unconvinced that Gable had committed the crime and worried that police would take advantage of his diminished mental capacity in order to pressure him into falsely confessing. Concerned citizens wrote letters to the editor of the local paper and called upon the ACLU to intervene in what they considered a grace miscarriage of justice. Although Gable did wear his light brown hair in a ponytail, consistent with eyewitness testimony, he also wore round-framed glasses which neither witness reported. Consistent with their original claim that the man in the sketch was not necessarily a suspect, police dismissed their discrepancies as irrelevant. They also refused to provide information on how Gable had originally come to the police station, but did claim that the sketch had been very helpful in his identification. Pre-trial hearings were held for much of 1997. Carolyn Dow, a librarian at the Bennett Martin Public Library that was a mouthful, Uh, testified that she overheard a conversation between Gable and another man in the library's music section, in which Gable talked about strangling someone and also used the name Tina. Jeremy Nelson, a friend of Gable's, identified as as the man in the library with him, refuted these claims. However, cross-examination revealed that Nelson suffered from lifelong problems with memory and recall, throwing his testimony into further doubt. So that's um a little bit suspicious. Um, December of that year, a judge ordered Gable to undergo a competency evaluation um, to see if he was mentally fit to stand trial. Just one month later, a second DNA test was ordered on the hair sample, this time Using a newly developed mitochondrial DNA analysis approach, which I have no idea what that means, but apparently it was technology, it was like uh, much more better than the one they had done before and required less input sample than the original technique. Again, don't really know what that means, but we'll just assume it's much better. While the sample was being retested at Penn State University, Gable was declared incompetent to stand trial by virtue of his mental illness. Lancaster County attorney Gary Lacey claimed in March 1998 that he would contest his finding and Gable was ordered to undergo a second psychological evaluation, this time with an evaluator selected by Lacey's office. In April 1998, however, before this second in April of 1998. However, before the second evaluation could be held, the state's entire case fell apart. The results of this new DNA testing had had been received, and Gregory Gable was definitely excluded as a match to the sample found at the crime scene. It remains unclear as to why the two DNA tests came to opposite conclusions, although the second test is considered to be to be more more definitive as well as more technologically advanced so no evidence has been found su- to suggest that the samples had been contaminated or otherwise mishandled meaning that this may have truly been an initial false positive as the original report concluded a one in 1049 chance that a random white individual could have been could have contributed the DNA leaves a 0.1% chance that Gable matched the profile by sheer coincidence, even leaving out the possibility of incompetence or conspiracy. So that's interesting. It means that there's there's a very small chance that it could have just been completely random. Um, that's I guess we'll never know because tragically. The second round of DNA testing used up all the remaining genetic material and evidence, meaning that there is no way to retest to confirm the new findings. Two years after his arrest, on July 16th, 1998, Gable was released. Although police still him to be a suspect, they opted not to continue with the trial, preferring to maintain the option to try him in the future, should more evidence be found. This anticipated evidence, however, has yet to appear. Retired Lincoln Police Sergeant Larry Barksdale told reporters that his team had combed through all of the physical evidence in the case multiple times in search of any residual DNA that could be tested using newer, more sensitive techniques. Despite sending at least three additional samples of processing to see if traced genetic material could be collected, no usable DNA has been found. Barksdale, now teaches in the University of Nebraska's uh, forensic science program, is not particularly hopeful that any new evidence will be found. Um, He was reported saying, he was reported saying uh, whatever there was was used up and nothing else produced information. So, that leads to the question of who actually killed Tina McMenamin. On September of twen- uh, on the 27th of September 1995, just two months after the murder, police received an anonymous handwritten letter reading Patrick Holmes killed, killed Tina McMenamin. No person at that time ha- has ever been identified in connection with the crime and no further information has indicated that this is a credible lead. However, early person of interest was Daniel Strom, a 21-year-old who also lived in the apartment complex. In December of 1995, he was charged with first-degree murder and the death of 51-year-old, who's charged with first-degree murder of the deaf 51-year-old Pamela Kelly, who he beat, sexually assaulted, and ran over with his car. Now obviously that murder has kind of similarities to the Tina case. She was murdered and sexually assaulted just like the other one. However, she wasn't ran over with a car. But, you know, there's there's a pattern there. However, there was no evidence that Stroll and Tina knew one another. and Stroll's time card confirmed his alibi and he had been working during Tina's murder. So, he's pretty much written off from the crime. Police have looked at other homicides in the, across the Midwest. And although they have stated that they have no evidence to believe that Tina was killed by a serial killer, they cannot definitely rule out the possibility. Tina is not known to have, a boy- to have had a boyfriend or other romantic relationship at the time of her death. Since Gable's release, no new suspects have been implicated in the crime. The most recent development in the case has been the publication of an inmate tip from early 2005. The, information, the informant claimed that a man who police identify as a suspect in the case told him specific information about Tina's murder and invited him to come out to the bike trail at 48th Street and Normal Boulevard where he had hidden some items taken from Tina's apartment among the rocks. Beliefs have asked anyone who has found an unusual photograph or piece of jewellery along the path to notify them, although it is not clear whether these items were actually reported as stolen from the original crime scene. However, what's really unnerving about this fact is that several of Gables. Um, Gregory Gable's previous convictions allegedly occurred among the same bike trails as where this guy said the evidence was, and despite his exclusion of by DNA evidence, Gable has remained a prime suspect in the eyes of many. Indeed, even after Gable's 1998 release, he was placed under surveillance for a period of approximately two years. Investigator Rich Dirkter claims to have had to have gone so far as to rent an apartment near Gable's and befriend him in an effort to obtain information about the crime. And then this investigator, who masqueraded as a tanning salon manager, went as far as to take Gable to the local strip clubs in an attempt to gain his trust. And Gable would regularly talk to the investigator about women he was watching around town. Which is another really creepy kind of fact. However, he never confessed to Tina's murder or provided any evidence that would progress the investigation. A scholarship fund was established in Tina's honour at the University of Nebraska, and a bench and sweetgum tree um, on the campus commemorate the young woman. The and family continued to call for anyone with information about the crime to come forward, and they, re- they still remain hopeful that Tina's murder will eventually be solved. I think what's so horrible about this case is that there's no real idea of who killed her or what happened. I think it's about the not knowing that it's really kind of scary. I personally think Gregory Gable did it. I just think there's so much about this guy that points to him being the killer. The fact that he watches other women. Anyway, that's everything for today's episode. Thanks for watching, and come back next week. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.